Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Welcome to episode 120 on the Bible Sojourner podcast. And I'm just so grateful that we continue to be able to talk about some of these issues. And I will have to say, because uh, we are at episode 120, I noticed something very specific before I started recording today. And that's with the 120th episode, the Bible Sojourner podcast has surpassed the Just Thinking podcast. They are at 119 episodes. So does that mean that the Bible Sojourner podcast is better than the Just Thinking podcast? Well, I will let you decide that. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, the Just Thinking podcast is amazing. I love listening to those guys. If you haven't listened to them, make sure to check them out. They do like three-hour episodes. So they, having 119 episodes, have obviously much more content than we have. Although it's kind of fun to hear some of the similar concepts. They have some great material on critical race theory and some of those subjects. It's just uh, really well done. Really appreciate the ministry of those fine gentlemen over there. But today, to celebrate the 120th episode, we are going to continue talking about some of the issues of theonomy and postmillennialism, specifically because we pretty much concluded our small series on theonomy. We had cross-referenced brief, briefly with postmillennialism, and today I want to talk specifically about postmillennialism. Now, as we start the conversation, I will admit that I did have an individual this week tell me that they wished I was not so nice and that I would call the people that I'm talking about names and be a little nastier. So in this episode, I'm just going to lay down the law and I'm just going to make fun of people and call people all sorts of names. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, I was reminded that my mother always used to, who is an avid listener of this podcast, so thank you, mother, or at least she tells me she is, but my mother always used to tell me that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And so it's my job, it's my goal, if you will, to catch post-millennial flies and convince them that post-millennialism is an error. Okay, that's my goal. I'm here to catch the post-millennial flies. And so I really just want to be as reasonable and rational as possible. I do think it, it's a Christian virtue to try to approach the best arguments from the other side. And I appreciate when others do that to me and for the positions I hold. And I would like to return the favor as much as possible. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's often the case that dispensationalism uh, is not read or represented well. And so it's actually pretty rare that that happens. But I would like to, at least for the sake of postmillennialism, represent them as accurately as possible using their words, their definitions, etc., and talk about why there are some major problems with postmillennialism as a eschatological viewpoint. So one of the things I want to talk about again, which we mentioned during the theonomy episodes in the recent past, is that with regard to the popularity of postmillennialism, theonomy and postmillennialism are essentially linked with the worldview. And the reason why there's been a rise in both, uh, we talked a little bit about that in the theonomy episode, but one of the things I just want to repeat is that the postmillennialists, the theonomists, the Christian reconstructionists, they all are a media machine. Uh, they, they essentially are the YouTube channels on, on, on social media, they have YouTube, they have Twitter accounts, they have the Facebook groups, all that. And I will firmly admit that they do the best job on social media. They really do. And so it's, it's with a bit of not, not really hesitation, but consternation, if you will, that I observe that even some of my friends are being convinced by post-millennialism and theonomy. And I think it's really important to address um, what's going on, and, and at least point out some of the biblical flaws. So I want to go over the definition of postmillennialism and talk about it in at least this episode. Obviously, there's many more things we can and 
Lord willing, we'll talk about with regard to post-millennialism. But I think just giving broad, general thoughts in this episode will be helpful as a starting point. So the first thing is to define post-millennialism. And of course, the, the three main eschatological views, amillennialism, post-millennialism, and premillennialism, are defined with with respect to what they believe about the millennium and its relationship to the return of Jesus Christ or our position with regard to the millennium. So that, that's typically how they're, they're defended uh, and, and assessed. But I, I want to just zero in on postmillennialism. And in order to provide a good definition of postmillennialism, I'm just using Kenneth Gentry's material just because it's really well known and that stuff comes up on the, on the, the Google and the DuckDuckGo when you search for it. And so Kenneth Gentry's material is really uh, a good summation. Now, obviously, there are differences among postmillennialists, but his material is found on postmillennialworldview.com, and that's where I'm getting this definition. So he, he provides it right on the very front page of his website, and he says this, so this is a quote on, on his definition section of postmillennialism. He says, postmillennialism holds that the Lord Jesus Christ established his kingdom on earth in the first century through his preaching and redemptive work. Okay, so that's the first part of his definition. This is, and right away, if you're familiar with this podcast, if you've listened to some of the episodes before, and um, I encourage you to go back and listen to the episodes on the kingdom of God and how scripture talks about it and defines it. I think that that's important. And not only how the scripture talks about it and defines it, but also talks about its implementation, right? So I would contest that the kingdom was not instituted in the first century, that it wasn't fully established. The king was identified and anointed and solidified, given authority to be sure, but the kingdom was not present. And that is basically exemplified by the disciples in Acts 1 and Acts 3, where in Acts 1, after Jesus, after being risen from the dead, right? So Jesus had risen from the dead. He's been teaching them about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And at the end of all that, right before his ascension, they say, so is it at this time the kingdom comes? Now, Obviously, you know, you're you're up against a wall if you're arguing that they were so out to left field they had no understanding of the kingdom of God. Because what the implication, the straightforward implication of that text is, is that they understood that the kingdom was not at that point. Okay? And so they were they were wondering when the kingdom was going to be instituted. And so that's simply the premillennial view is that the kingdom has not been fully instituted, although some premillennialists would say it's an already not yet kind of paradigm. And that that's pretty popular, but uh, I think it's important to understand that the kingdom is defined in the Old Testament and the expectation carries on in the New Testament and uh, they didn't see it. And so they were saying, well, when is it going to take place? Acts 3 fits into that paradigm, of course, uh, where they say, if, if you repent, then the times of refreshment will come, which are associated with the kingdom, etc. So postmillennialism, in contrast to that, uh, it, it believes it, it's a necessity in postmillennialism that the kingdom is now, that it's spiritual, that it's now, it's focused on salvation. So this is this is a very important reality in both postmillennialism and amillennialism. And so we've done some podcast episodes on that in the past on the kingdom of God. So we won't touch on that too much more. But he goes on in his definition now, going back to Gentry's definition. He says, since then, he has continued to, so since then is referring to the establishment of the kingdom on earth. So since then, he has continued to equip his church with the gospel, empower her by his spirit, and charge her with the great commission to disciple all nations. Okay, and I have no problem with that because that is the goal of the church is to disciple all nations. Now, this is where the the difference is going to be in this next uh, part of the definition. So Gentry says, postmillennialism expects that eventually the vast majority of men living will be saved. In, let me say that again. Postmillennialism expects that eventually the vast majority of men living will be saved. Increasing gospel success will gradually produce a time in history prior to Christ's return in which faith, righteousness, peace, and prosperity will prevail in the affairs of men and of nations. 
After an extensive era of such conditions, the Lord will return visibly, bodily, and gloriously to end history. And that's the uh, end of that section of the definition. So now notice what the, the key component of this definition is, is that there's an expectation that at some point uh, prior to the Christ's return, the majority of the world that is living and, and, and uh, interacting, are they are saved individuals. And so because the gospel has, has brought this success, they will... Uh, they will experience this prosperity, which comes through living in the way that God wants in accordance with the gospel, following his law, et cetera, et cetera. So, and this, this is viewed as something which takes place gradually, uh, over time. Okay. And then after this era, this extensive era of quote, such conditions, then the Lord will return visibly bodily and gloriously to end history. Okay, so that's Gentry's definition here. And he goes on on his definition page, if you're interested, and you want to see more about what he says, he explains some of these elements in further detail. Uh, for example, when he talks about the gradual development and expansion, he basically talks about how this will be caused by a full-orbed ministry of the word, fervent, believing prayer, and consecrated labors of Christ's spirit-filled people. And Christ, of course, from his throne in heaven is directing all of this where he sits at God's right hand. So that's that's what I want to touch on and kind of ask today is, is really the question that postmillennialism is constantly assuming a specific answer to. Uh, should we expect that everyone or the vast majority of people living on the world will eventually be saved? That we we will see in our lifetime individuals uh, from all these nations, the majority of which being saved. And and people are hesitant to give percentages, but we're talking about the vast majority. So we're talking about a high percentage, the majority of people being saved. Is that what we should expect? Now, in order to answer that question, I think we could ask of scripture, are there passages which talk about whether the gospel is palatable to the multitude whether there are going to be a majority of people saved or a minority of people saved. I think that would be fair to ask, right? If there are passages which talk about that, then we should consult these. Because this is a pretty weighty claim that postmillennialism makes, right? What it says is that the majority of people living at some point are going to accept uh, the message of Christ. It is no longer going to be a message which they repel. In the words of John, the darkness is not going to repel the light or hate the light because they are themselves also going to be of the light. And so what does scripture say about this? Well, there's a couple of passages in Matthew that I think are worth consulting here. And in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, we have these very foundational passages, which I remember the first time I read these, I thought that these were very, very difficult. Difficult in the sense that they were potentially discouraging. And so I wondered why Jesus would say such things because Jesus was supposed to give uplifting messages and encouragement, whatever. That was my naivety um, when I was younger. But this is what this is what Jesus says in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Okay. So here in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, when Jesus is talking about the way to life, he says, listen, the, the, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many people that enter that gate, but the way to life is narrow and it's difficult. And the people who find that way are few. So again, I, I, I just think if we're asking the question, is it true that the majority of men living will be saved? It's kind of contradictory to what Jesus is saying in Matthew 7. At least it seems to me I'd be interested in hearing how, how this would be assessed. 
uh, my only thought would be, I think maybe, maybe post-millennialists would say, well, this was only during the time of Jesus that this applied. But overall, we know that this passage doesn't apply to the rest of church history. Well, Jesus says something very similar just a few verses later. He warns people about people who think that they're going to be believers. In Matthew 7, 21, 22, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, again, does this only apply to the time of Jesus? You know, dispensationalists are often accused of breaking apart scripture. In fact, many dispensationalists are accused of only saying the Sermon on the Mount should apply to the Millennial Kingdom. And there have been dispensationalists who have done that, although uh, I am personally not aware of any who do that uh, today. But that's often what dispensationalists are accused of. But what, how would a post-millennialist take this passage? Because the post-millennialist is saying there's going to be an abundance of individuals, many people who think that they're Christians, who are actually not. And that's, and now again, this passage in and of itself, the passage before it in and of itself, does that discount the whole post-millennial system? No. And that's not the point. The point is to build a case that there is an expectation in scripture of a certain reality. And one of the realities here is that even among those people who who look like they're Christian, there's always going to be, at least that's my understanding here with what Jesus is saying, there's always going to be on the earth a assortment of individuals who blend in with Christians, but they're not Christians. And there's going to be many of them, many. Now, does that mean that there's going to be more people who are pseudo-Christians than are not? Well, let, let me ask you something here, and this is an interesting assessment, okay? So, Christianity is very much represented in the world's statistical population, right? Because in, in the way that people talk about Christians and those people who would associate with Christ, you have Catholicism, which is the you know biggest branch of Christianity, and you have uh, all... So, Catholicism in and of itself, I'm not sure... I just know I've seen numbers ranging, you know, over 1 billion people who are Christian, right? Well, if we're talking about Catholicism as being half of that population, we'll just say that for the sake of argument, although I'm sure it's it's more than half. But let's say you have Catholicism, plus you have many, many Protestant uh, liberal denominations where there are, are probably no real Christians in them or very few real Christians in these liberal denominations, which deny some of the basic tenets of the Christian faith. Well, obviously I know, and I've heard people say, well, look, the world is becoming Christianized. There's so, there's so many Christians in the world and you can't say that that's not evidence of the power of the gospel. But the reality is, at least in my assessment of what qualifies as a Christian, over half of what qualifies as a Christian. And that's, that's a pretty loose estimate. I would probably say it's much higher than that, but we'll just say for the, for the sake of argument, you know, half, including, you know, the, the major Roman Catholic church are not real Christians, that they will be the ones who are identified in Matthew 7, 21, 22, who say, Lord, Lord, we identified with you. And he says, I never knew you, you weren't real Christians. And so it's one of those realities where I think we, we need to think critically that, and I, by the way, I believe this has always been the case. And I think that you study church history, that that seems to be played out, is that there are many, many seasons in the church history where you have uh, a lot of Christians being identified. However, as evidence plays out, many of them were Christian in name only, right? They were not genuine believers. And so this is what a, a lot of times people talk to about or talk about there being a remnant and things like that. And I, I think you can carry that a little too far, but the reality is scripture does seem to indicate that there are, there's a significant sizable population among those who profess Christ, who are not actual believers. And do we say that these passages in Matthew seven are only applicable up to a certain point, And then it just goes away. 
because at some point, everyone who claims to be a Christian actually is a Christian. That, that seems to be problematic, right? Problematic with how Jesus is defining this. And so on the one hand, you have post-millennialists making the very important assertion to their theological system that you're going to have the majority of people saved. And you have Jesus who's saying, you know, there are going to be many people who do not understand. Um, and there are few people who do understand. And there's going to be a lot of people who think that they understand. And they come to me saying, I had a relationship with you. And he said, no, you didn't depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. So, so these passages in the Sermon on the Mount already start, start us thinking down a specific track. Now, as we go on in the gospel of Matthew, there's, there's a really interesting verse in Matthew twenty two fourteen, 14, which uh, could, could be utilized here in a, a very specific way. You have Matthew twenty two fourteen, 14, where Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, somebody might say, well, don't rip that verse out of context. Well, this is the whole foundation of this parable, right? And what is this parable about? So this parable uh, in verse two is all about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. So if you want to talk about the kingdom, this is a great passage to do so, right? And in verse two, it says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He sent his servants to call those who are invited. And so the, the servants go out, they invite all of these people to come to the wedding feast, which is obviously symbolic of the kingdom. And so the servants go out and they invite people, but the people don't come. The people don't come. And so then the servants go back out and they invite others. They invite others to, to fill their place and, and they come. And what ends up happening, uh, and, and there, there's this individual who comes who didn't quite have the right vestments for uh, having been invited. And so the king uh, casts him out into utter darkness because he um, did not respond and receive the wedding garment and whatnot. And so then Jesus gives the foundational principle for understanding this parable. And he says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, what does that mean? If not exactly what it says, that the call goes out to many, but ultimately the many do not respond and only a few, the few that are chosen by God, they, they respond in faith, right? And so again, this is specifically in Matthew talking about the kingdom and how the kingdom operates and works. So many are called, but few are chosen. So again, let, let's, let's compare this with the theology that the vast majority of people living are going to be saved. Is that, does that fit with the theology of Matthew 22 here? I'm not so sure about that, right? Now, I think those verses in and of themselves can be can be quite significant, but uh, later on in the in the all that discourse, we also have a couple of verses that fit into this. Now, I know, I know, post millennialists. It's actually essential, uh, absolutely essential for the post millennialists to have uh, much of Scripture being fulfilled and applied in seventy A.D. And that's one of the big turnoffs of the system and why it doesn't work so well is because so so much of scripture has to be fulfilled in 70 AD in order for the system to even be viable. But then you also still run into a, a lot of problems with the passages. But in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14, you have another passage here. And it says, uh, many will fall away, betray one another, hate one another. Many false prophets will arise. And then in verse 12, it says, because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. So this is talking about a future time, right? Now, the post-millennialist, I know, says, well, of course, this happened right before 70 AD. You had the love of many growing cold and you had people falling away up to 70 AD, but then something changed at 70 AD. There was some... Um, you know, it really does. Now, again, this is where I need to be restrained and I don't want to name call and I just need to catch flies with honey and not with vinegar. But it really does seem like there's some magical potion, magical operation that happens in 70 AD, which all of a sudden changes things because you have people falling away, uh, up until 70 AD, but then apparently, you know, past that, you know, you expect a gradual increase from, from then. Uh, but that aside, uh, I just want to make a couple comments because all the discourse is so huge, obviously. And I know anybody who's uh, predisposed to post-millennialism will say, well, it's, it's very clearly proven that this is 70 AD. 
Well, let me just give a couple a couple notes here, but we really need to do a, a, another episode. I've done some in the past, uh, maybe like two or three years ago on the All of It Discourse, and I've reviewed some of Jeff, Jeff Durbin's stuff on it. But uh, let me just give a couple comments with regard to this. So they say that this was accomplished in 70 AD, but you really have to be dealing in so much generics. Uh, everything needs to be referred to generically. Uh, in order to make that happen, because the specifics that are actually given don't really fit at, fit well with all, with the 70 AD scenario. For example, in verse 6, Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. And they say, well, certainly war and rumors of wars fits with the rebellion uh, and the decimation of Jerusalem in 70 AD, etc. But the reality is, I mean, you study history uh, I, nobody would deny the fact that Israel rebelled and they were significantly punished because of that. But overall, this was not a time of war and rumors of wars, right? I mean, this is, uh, every historian knows that this is the heart of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And that doesn't mean that there were no, no, uh, wars or rebellions. It just means that they were very few because anytime they popped up, they were crushed immediately. So you look through the history, especially the Old Testament history of Israel, and you can't you can't um, really come away with thinking that this is some special um, idea of war, rumors of wars. I, I think there would have to be significant more something much more significant than than what you're seeing in 70 A.D. But regardless, let's say somebody says, "Well, no, that would still qualify." Okay, that's fine. Um, but think about uh, verse 21, and it says. There will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be, right? So, obviously, a post-millennialist has to say, well, this is just figurative speech because this is not saying that this is the worst thing that's ever happened. It's just saying that this is a bad thing. Because, again, Israel suffered many, many things, uh, and there have been many, many wars, destructions of Jerusalem, uh, and what what makes this one, you know, the one that has never been uh, and never will be again? You know, that's and people will say, well, it's just prophetic speech. It's just very generic. But that's that's what you're forced to do. Right. That's what you're forced to do. And if you do that enough, uh, prophecy all of a sudden loses all its meaning because you can make it mean whatever you want. If it's just talking in generics. Right. Of course. So I would say just obviously we'll do another episode at some point in the future on the Olivet Discourse. But my, my big contention against my post-millennial brothers and sisters is that they are forced to make the all of it discourse so generic uh, with regard to some of these specifics, and that that's just unhelpful. So I do think that Matthew 24, uh, verse 12, does uh, refer to a future time uh, where the love of many will grow cold, and it doesn't just last up to 70 AD, okay? But I would say this. Okay, that's that's just Matthew. Okay, there's a lot more New Testament left, and there are a lot more passages, right? So I would just say, in in essence, though, these passages should give us at least a little bit of concern or hesitancy, restraint, with regard to thinking that the majority of people are going to be saved, right? Uh, I think, especially how Jesus talks about salvation and the unlikelihood that people find it, right? Uh, I think that those are those are significant points when we when we address those issues and and work through that. But let's let's think about it from other perspectives as well. Okay, so perhaps the best illustration of of last day difficulties or the the worsening of the world is Second Timothy three. So in Second Timothy three, you have a passage where. Paul is discussing the last days and he's talking about what will happen. So in 2 Timothy 3.1, he says this, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now it's actually interesting because I couldn't remember what post-millennialists uh, say on this passage. I think they probably have a variety of, of ways that they talk about this. So I just looked up uh, on YouTube, 
what uh, what they said. And Doug Wilson's video came up. I think he's one of the more prominent search results. He and Jeff Durbin almost have a monopoly on it. And so uh, I was listening to Doug Wilson's video. Maybe sometime we'll review the whole thing because I thought it was really interesting because he was being interviewed. It was just a five or six minute clip and he was being interviewed on this passage. And uh, basically the guy who interviewed says, how does post-millennialism understand problem passages like Second Timothy 3? And then um, uh, so Doug Wilson responded saying, well, the last days it's obvious that that those are fulfilled uh, in 70 AD. That's the beauty of preterism because preterism answers all these difficulties, but it's really the other positions that have all these problem passages. And that was, that was literally the extent of his answer. And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, like how, you know, how deep is that? Is that really satisfying to the post-millennialist? Now let me read the passage here because I think this is, this is uh, important. Okay. So understand this in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now, that in and of itself is uh, pretty much a spot-on description of the world in which we live. But as the passage goes on, there is another uh, key component of this text, which I think is is really helpful to understand. In verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then verse 13 continues this thought, While evil people and imposters will go on from being bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So notice the key one-two punch here of 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13. He says, listen, anyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. And of course, the assumption behind that is because of what he's just talked about in the passage. Because during these last days, there's going to be these individuals who are lovers of self. They, like John says, they are of the darkness, so they hate the light. And so there's going to come persecution, right? That's going to be a mark. And what is also going to happen concurrently, verse 13, while, while it's concurrent, while evil people and imposters will go on from being bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, right? So the implication I get from that is that you're going to have this degradation of society and things are just going to continue on that way, uh, getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, now there may be alleviations of that, but there's going to be uh, difficulty and there's going to be uh, problems in society with the degradation and this, this a- opposition to, to God. Now, of course, in order to get out of this, you have to say that, well, this was just talking about the time leading up to 70 AD. That's what you have to say if you're a post-millennialist. That's, even though I haven't listened to really all the post-millennialists, the ones that I have read and listened to, they all say that same theme. And, and it's basically an obligation to do because if you say this is applicable to all time, then how, how else would you apply it, right? So this was only applicable up to 70 AD. But let me ask a question here. I don't, I haven't heard any post-millennialists talk about this, but this is, I think, uh, if I may be a little so bold as to say, a bit of a slap in the face. Because when did Paul write Second Timothy? Well, 2 Timothy is one of the easiest books to date in the New Testament. Uh, Revelation is actually really easy to date too. But 2 Timothy is dated to just before Paul dies, right? So 67 AD. Now, when is the magical number? 70 AD for the destruction of Jerusalem? So we're talking about sometime in 67 AD. You have Paul writing a message that's only going to be valid for about two and a half years. Okay. So Paul is writing 2 Timothy 3. Now, he's got he's writing this message in 2 Timothy 3, and he's hoping that it's going to get to all these churches uh, as an encouragement because it's only applying for two and a half years. Okay, I've had, uh, you know, I, I've, I've thought about this before. That, that doesn't seem like a very good use of parchment, right? Parchment is pretty expensive in the ancient world. And if, if that's, if you, if that was your message, if your mas- message was hang in there because, you know, for the next two and a half years, things are going to get worse. 
but then it's going to, it's going to get better. After 70 AD, things are going to get better. So just hang in there during these last two and a half years, and then it's all going to get better. That's, if we understand the post-millennial viewpoint, that's literally what they're arguing. They're saying the last days, the last age here, uh, the last part of this, of this eon of this age goes up to 70 AD and then it uh, gets better from there. And so he's saying, just hang in there two and a half years and then it'll get better. Is that what is that, do we really expect Paul, if we were interviewing him saying, okay, so Paul, you were writing this and you were arguing, okay, it needs to be two and a half years and then, and then it'll get better. Why not just send a messenger to say that? I feel like that would be a little easier saying, okay, guys, just hang on for a couple of years and it'll get better. That, that would be pretty easy to do, but how much more applicable, obviously, would this be if we understand this is applicable to all time, understanding uh, that the application goes beyond 70 AD. Now, I'm just arguing from practicality's sake, but there's actually a much, much more significant argument for this, right? And those of you who've listened to this podcast probably are already thinking about this, is that the last days there is actually technical terminology, Okay, and I don't know how postmillennialists miss this, but uh, the last days is actually technical terminology that starts in the Old Testament. And it, uh, you know, you have Genesis 49, you have Deuteronomy 4, you have Hosea 3, you have Jeremiah, all these passages which are, are eschatological in nature, and they're defining what's going to take place in the last days. And so the last days are going to include uh, Israel's eventual repentance. They're going to include the institution of the kingdom. They're going to include the king reigning from uh, Jerusalem and his throne. Uh, all these things, uh, Hosea 3 talks about the whole nation coming to repentance and and submitting themselves to God in, in the last days. So, so this is this is a very specific phrase that's utilized in Scripture in the Old Testament. You just do a search for the latter days, last days. Those concepts, they're actually the unfortunately our translators translate them differently, but they're the same phrase in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's it's the same. So here in the New Testament, even though it's it's Greek, it's utilizing the same Greek phrase of the Old Testament, which was originally written in Hebrew, obviously. So this is a connection that that would be obvious to Timothy or anybody else reading this saying like, okay, in this age in which we're talking about the last days, which is defined in the Old Testament now, and we are in it, we are in the last days, this is what you expect. Now, how do we know that we're in the last days? Well, very simply, because in Acts 2, Peter tells us that we're in the last days. In in Acts 2, when Peter quotes Joel 2, he actually adapts the quote there And he says in the last days or in the latter days, depending on how your translation translates that, he says this will take place saying that this is what, uh, as you see the manifestation of the tongues here, you know that, that this is what's going on. We, we have seen the inauguration of the last days. So the last days started in Acts 2 and it continues. We are still in the last days. So the last days spans from Acts 2 till uh, the end of the kingdom of God, till the end of the millennium, the 1,000 year reign of Christ. So those are the last days. The last days do not end in 70 AD. Okay. So that's a huge error and uh, pretty much a fatal flaw to post-millennialism. But in order to obviously get this passage to fit with post-millennialism, you have to make last days here a reference to 70 AD. Um, saying that, okay, up to 70 AD, this is what's going to mark people. But after this, then we don't have to worry about this, this kind of, uh, mindset that, that we're going, that things are not going to get worse and worse. So again, I don't think, I hope not every post-millennialist treats this passage this way. Um, but the ones that I did read, uh, use the 70 AD cop out as a saying, well, this is what they were expecting, um, to take place in 70 AD. But we know that it's already happened now, so we get to look back on that. And so I would just challenge on those two points that the uh, normal interpretation of the scripture and understanding of what it, how the scripture defines the last days uh, is is fatal to this view. Plus, the just practical matter of why in the world would Paul write something that was going to be expired after two and a half years that makes very very little sense. 
um, in, in my mind. Uh, and I think that that's uh, incredibly problematic. The passage, just at a straightforward value, says people will go from bad to worse, and they are going to continue this deception and being deceived, and everyone who desires to live a godly life will suffer persecution. So that's what Paul expects Christians to understand uh, in this life. Now, there are other passages too. Um, 2 Peter 3 is a really big one, uh, but it's such a big one and such an important one. I I think I'm going to wait and do a whole episode on that text at some point. Uh, Basically, what the text talks about is that in the last days, there's going to be scoffers and people following their sinful desires, and God is ultimately going to destroy the planet. And uh, the, the only thing I've really heard in response to to this passage, oftentimes from post-millennialist, is just appealing to John Owen. And so I need to go and read what John Owen has said, because I haven't read John Owen on Second Peter 3, but I will eventually, and we'll do a, do a response on that. Uh, because John Owen, John Owen, apparently, according to Jeff Durbin, says that it has to do with the doing away of the Old Covenant, which doesn't make any sense to me in Second Peter 3. So we'll talk about that. But again, that could be and should be considered here, where Second Peter 3 talks about the degradation of the world and how that's going to continue all the way up until the Lord finally, you know, renews everything. And so I think that that's an important application as well. Uh, finally, I, I want to point to two other passages as well, and I think these are these are key passages which show that the world will not, you know, go into a state of perpetual uh, blessedness before Christ comes, right? And so, uh, in Second Thessalonians one and Second Thessalonians two, you have these unique passages. I say unique, um, meaning um, that obviously Paul is is talking about them in a explicit way in Thessalonians that he doesn't really talk about elsewhere. So that's why, but I don't think the, the themes are unique except for second Thessalonians two definitely adds some unique themes or unique items that are, that are helpful to understand. But second Thessalonians one is the first one to understand. And in second Thessalonians one verses five through 10. Now, now again, I want to set this up by saying, what are we expecting? According to the post-millennial worldview, we expect the majority of people, according to Kenneth Gentry and everybody else who holds the post-millennialism, uh, the majority of people are going to be Christians and there's going to be a state of bliss at the end of which Christ returns. Okay, so Christ is going to return at the end of this of this perpetual state of blessedness and where, you know, maybe not everybody, but the majority of people are saved and so there's going to be just tranquility on the earth. Okay, well, what does Thessalonians talk about when Christ returns? So in verse 5, it says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So in other words, the relief that's going to come for the believers is going to coincide with Jesus being revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Okay. Now this is going to take place in verse eight. It says in flaming fire, it's going to be inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So apparently there is going to be individuals when Jesus comes who is, who don't know God and who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, that's literally what the text is saying. And in verse 9 it says, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. So that is the time when it's going to take place is they will be judged when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So this passage, very simple, but I think it's it's helpful to just understand that there's going to be people who are unbelievers and they are not going to know God and they're not going to be obeying the gospel. Okay, so... The question is exactly how much of a mess is this going to be? Okay, that that's the real key. But I think Gentry would agree with the majority of post-millennialists that 
there's going to be a significant rebellion right before Christ comes. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a little bit, but I think that that's a a key component of the post-millennial argument. So regardless, 2 Thessalonians 1 talks about how there's a significant mess when Christ comes, and we'll talk about that in, in a little bit. Now, the very next chapter of 2 Thessalonians is another really uh, problematic passage for post-millennialism. So Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, obviously addressing the day of the Lord, because somebody had either deceived them uh, by speaking to them or writing a letter to them. In verse 2, he says, Don't be shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. So I take that as saying somebody sent a letter pretending to be Paul, trying to tell them that the day of the Lord had already come. And so Paul was saying, no, the day of the Lord has not come. Uh, and notice in verse 1 of chapter 2, that this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he's writing now in verse 1, concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered together to him. So now those are the two elements here, right? So uh, the reason I'm pointing out this right now is because the whole uh, Paul is writing about Jesus coming and are being gathered to him. Okay, now somebody, well, and, and this is the point because a lot of people in the postmillennial camp, I say a lot of people. Uh, it's hard to say percentage wise if if it's more or less than than um, what camp, but a lot of people say this has to be fulfilled in 70 A.D. Right. So they say this is talking about 70 AD. Well, it's difficult to get uh, the second phrase. They want to say Jesus came in judgment. It's just a metaphor. But how do you explain our being gathered to him? You can't. It's very difficult. Uh, You'd have to say that's metaphorical. Maybe maybe we've been reunited with him spiritually so we can be more uh, attuned to his will. Obviously, the very straightforward reading here is that Jesus comes and we go to him. So we are united with Christ, which from a dispensational viewpoint would be uh, a rapture idea here. Um, from a amillennial uh, perspective, it'd be probably second coming aspect. But notice what, what Paul says details. The details matter here. Because he says it this, in ver- this way in verse 3. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, that is the day of the Lord, right? Uh, For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. All right, so you have two things here, which Paul says in response to uh, the the question of whether or not the day of the Lord has actually come. So has the, has the day of the Lord come? Well, don't let anyone deceive you. The day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Okay. So those two things must take place before the day of the Lord comes. Now, if you, you, you have two options here as a post-millennialist and it's kind of difficult for either one, but really there's only one option. So the, the one would be by gentry and others would be trying to make this 70 AD. Okay, so let's try to make this 70 AD. I already said there's there's a problem here. Um, okay, and, and really it's not specifically 70. They would, they would put it just a little bit before. They would say, you know, maybe 64 to 66 AD, something like that. Um, they would say that's what we're talking about because Nero is going to be the man of lawlessness because wasn't Nero a man of lawlessness? I mean, he, he sure had no regard for the law of God. He certainly would fulfill that uh, identification or description. So they would say Nero would fulfill that. Perhaps there's some others that would be thrown in there as well. Uh, you know, the, the point is, okay, let, let's identify the man of lostness with somebody, uh, prior to 70 AD. The rebellion would be the rebellion that the Jews implemented, right? So the rebellion, the Jews are, are trying to overthrow the Roman yoke of oppression, um, and they're, they're rebelling that. And so those are the two signs that we're seeing the rebel, the rebellion of the Jews. And we also have, uh, Nero as the man of lawlessness come on the scene opposing God, but really it doesn't make any sense. First of all, there's no gathering together of believers with the Lord at that point. We already talked about that, but also think about the other things in verse four, this man of lawlessness is, is described specifically as one who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Okay, 
if you're going to do any exegesis whatsoever, this is so key because what it says is whoever this man of lawlessness is opposes everything that is called God. Okay. So he sets himself up as the only God. So he's in opposition to God and other worships. He demands soul worship. Now, Nero, uh, was he, did he completely annihilate, um, all of the Roman pantheon, um, and, and mandate that the entire kingdom give up their, their worship styles? Uh, I don't think so. Right. I don't think that he outlawed, um, every other God. Um, I'm happy to be corrected on that. I, uh, am not a Nero expert, but I would definitely, uh, enjoy seeing sources that said he outlawed, uh, worship of, you know, every God that the, that the Romans had conquered and all of that stuff. The point is that, that this individual is, is not just elevating himself as a deity. Uh, all of that seems to be the case here for sure, because it says he proclaims himself to be God, but he is also against every other form of worship. And so I think that that's, that's pretty significant. And, and I don't think Nero would qualify that. But then again, it also says that he takes his seat in the temple of God, right? And really, uh, the temple would still be standing when Thessalonians was written. I don't think we're talking about just some Roman pagan temple here. I think we're talking about the Israelite temple. That's what the original recipients of the letter would have understood it to mean, right? Because the temple's still standing, um, that that's a pretty obvious part of the argument here. And so when it says he's going to take his seat in the temple of God, did Nero ever sit in the temple in Jerusalem? No, of course not. And so he doesn't really fit these. So you either have to take uh, it metaphorically somehow, or you have to, you know, nuance it into generics, which make again, the entire prophecy just completely meaningless. You have to do things like that. So, I will admit that that trying to make this passage fit into, you know, some time frame, 64 to 70 AD, just is, in my mind, that there's no way to do it. Uh, I'm happy to address. In fact, if if anyone knows of other ways that people do that, I'd love to see it. I'm happy to talk about it more and address it. I just have not seen any good arguments for that, and so I don't want to make I don't want to make believe that every postmillennialist believes that. Okay. I really do think that that's the lowest form of argumentation trying to make this, uh, fit into Nero or whatever. It just does not make sense whatsoever. But the best way to try to take this, if you're a postmillennialist is to view this as part of the future rebellion. So, uh, Doug Wilson, um, Charles Hodge, the great, uh, Princeton theologian who was postmillennialist, uh, th- they would both, among others, take this as something that was going to take place in the future. So Doug Wilson would say that this is uh, exactly what's described in Revelation 20. Both of these events describe the same thing, and they describe a future rebellion, a future rebellion against God. But here's the issue, right? The, the issue, and and I I couldn't find hardly anything about um, Wilson on this, except for one sermon he preached. And in the sermon, I listened to the whole thing because I wanted to, wanted to make sure I, I heard what he said, is he was, he was talking about the temple of God here. And he said, well, it's possible that it could be uh, the temple, if you believe that this took place before 70 AD, uh, that that's an option, that this is, you know, the real temple sitting in Jerusalem. But if you take it as future, as I do, that being Doug Wilson, that's what he said, um, it's also possible to take it as as the church. Now, I, uh, I now I want to be restrained because he he really did not sound like he was confident in saying that he would say that. It sounded like he said a lot of people believe that this is the church, but he himself did not say that. So I don't want to say he for sure believed that this was the church. I want to just say that seems like a pretty ridiculous um, interpretation of this, right? Because you have you have an individual here, the man of lawlessness, who opposes God and worship. So those are cultic descriptions, right? That would have been understood by the Thessalonians 100% of the time as being actual verifiable worship in the temples, right? And then it says specifically he takes his seat in the temple. Now that would have to be a crazy switch to metaphor, which how in the world would they be prepared for that, right? 
So how would they say, okay, yes, this 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 man of lawlessness is opposing so-called gods, everything that is called God, every object of worship within the cultic sphere, and he sits in the temple. But we know temple is metaphorical there. It's got to be a reference to the church. You know, of course, they would not do that. Okay, So this has to be a reference to a real temple, whether it be a pagan temple or the temple at Jerusalem. I would argue the only uh, thing that makes sense here would be the temple of Jerusalem. Now, uh, when we think about this then, uh, that that's the problem with Wilson and uh, others who who hold to a future uh, viewpoint of this is that they they remove the details a lot of it right so this this man of lawlessness which is which is coming um, is setting himself up to be God and he's obviously this this significant leader and I do think Revelation talks about him as well uh, although not uh, in twenty as much as uh, prior chapters. And so Wilson is so close yet so far on that. And so it's it's one of those things where, okay, if we pay attention to the details and actually exegete the text, we actually are forced to certain interpretations here. Or I should say uh, there are a variety of questions that we need to ask still, but uh, I should say that the post-millennial position um, of 7080 is for sure a no-go, but even the future... Uh, is suspect with how they describe the details. Uh, the details actually match much better in a premillennial system. That's why Kiliasm was a early belief of the church, of the very early church. And people were writing very early uh, on how the Antichrist uh, would come and referring to him in Second Thessalonians 2, right? So this is a very uh, significant position in the early church with regard to understanding Second Thessalonians two as as the Antichrist. Now, as as a reference here, I want to bring in Charles Hodge as well, just to show it's not just Wilson that I'm talking about. In Charles Hodge, he also held to a a rebellion at the end of this this period, which he had described as the general success of the gospel. And he said, the great truth set forth, this is Charles Hodge, the great truth set forth in these prophecies is that there was a future in the time, not only of Daniel, but also of the apostles, a great apostasy in the church, that this apostasy would be anti-Christian or anti-Christ, ally itself with the world and become a great persecuting power. And that the two elements, the ecclesiastical and the worldly, which enter into this great anti-Christian development, will sometimes, the one and sometimes the other, become the more prominent, sometimes acting in harmony and sometimes opposed one to the other, and therefore sometimes spoken of as one and sometimes as two distinct powers, both as united or as separate, are to be overtaken with a final destruction when the Lord comes." End quote. So what Hodge is basically saying there is that you have the apostasy of the church uh, and the world working together in tandem. Now, Hodge uh, tended to believe the apostasy of the church was found most prominently in the Catholic church. So you have the, the false church and the world banding together to persecute and you have this significant rebellion, especially before Christ comes. And then Christ comes and crushes both, both of them. The big picture is that Wilson and Hodge both talk about there being a rebellion, both talk about there being a significant opposition uh, prior to the end, prior to Christ returning, right? So let's let's take a step back, view this from the 10,000 foot level, okay? So there's a great rebellion at the end. Um, what, what's, the, what, what's the difference between premillennialism and postmillennialism here then? Um, doesn't it sound very similar if, if you think about premillennialism and postmillennialism, uh, again, assuming the best of postmillennialism where they, they allow for a rebellion at the end. I think that's really the only possible way to, to account for some of these texts, but some postmillennialists don't. And in fact, I would, I would think just my assessment of postmillennialism as I've been, you know, watching, reading and listening, um, kind of the fly on the wall, not the fly that goes after the vinegar though, the fly that goes after the honey. As I've been watching these things, uh, it seems to me a lot of those people who have newly embraced post-millennialism don't really understand this tension. And if they do, maybe they haven't thought about the 
implications because the implication is that premillennialism teaches the gospel will go to the nations. It will be effective, but there will be a significant amount of people in a variety of nations that oppose Christ and Christ will come back and destroy those who oppose him, right? That's premillennialism. Now, postmillennialism teaches the exact same thing. It teaches that the gospel will go out to the nations. It will be effective and there will be at least enough people at the end who will be rebellious when that Christ comes back and destroys them, right? So, in reality, premillennialism and postmillennialism, uh, at least in the best form of postmillennialism that I could find, teaches that there will be a significant portion of people unsaved at the end, right? They're pretty much mandated that way. And I think, again, even though when Gentry is defining postmillennialism, he says uh, the majority of people or most of the people are going to be saved. Well, you kind of have to walk that back a little bit because there needs to be a significant portion of people who are able to foment this rebellion. And that that's a key component. Hodge in his systematic theology had, had a, a section about how he thought that there would be a, a national salvation of the Jews, yet there would still be uh, enough Jews and Gentiles unsaved that they would uh, be able to be very instrumental in persecuting the church and and coming into power and authority that way. And so it, it's kind of interesting because it's always about, you know, Doug Wilson always uses his terminology of pessimillennialism and optimillennialism, right? And so dispensationalists are so pessimistic because they think that the world's going to get worse and worse and worse. But postmillennialism teaches that the world's going to get better and better and better. Except even Doug Wilson says, until it's not. And there's a huge setback at the end. And there's this massive, massive rebellion. Everything is in tatters. Well, that is also, you know, you think about, well, uh, every every argument that postmillennialists often lob at premillennialists saying, well, you guys are, um, you know, so pessimistic or negative, like that shows that the gospel was not effective. And if, if, if it's, if it's detrimental to the world and there's a degradation of the world, well, the same thing could be said about the end of the post-millennial system, right? Um, obviously the gospel is not effective if there's a major rebellion at the end, you know, same, it's the same thing right now. Again, um, I'm happy to interact. I think it's way easier to argue against post-millennialists that don't think there's going to be a rebellion at the end. But I, again, I think Wilson and Hodge are probably better representations than most, uh, acknowledging that there's going to be this significant rebellion and second Thessalonians two and revelation 20 have to fit into that system for them. And we'll, we'll spend more time talking about revelation 20 at a future time. But the big point then is really that, uh, I, I think there's a lot more, there's a lot more crossover between postmillennialism and premillennialism with regard to how things end in the world than is often acknowledged. Now, my big contention, though, is that what does the scripture actually teach about our expectation of the gospel? And I think that there are a lot of passages which talk about the 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 way the way to Christ being the narrow way. Uh, few people find it. Uh, I I think yeah, my, my understanding of scripture is that. Uh, the majority of people are going to ignore Christ. They are going to rebel against Christ. And that's not because of the ineffectiveness of the gospel. The gospel is completely effective uh, for those it's intended to save, right? But the reality is that those whom Christ chose, he saved. And so that's uh, a key component here. And I think I'm being more faithful to even the doctrine of election than a postmillennialist may be. Although, obviously, postmillennialists pretty much mandate that they would hold to a firm doctrine of election. So it's one of those things where 2 Timothy 3, 2 Thessalonians 2 kind of give a real significant picture that, that the world is going to keep getting worse. There's going to be this major, major rebellion at the end of time. Uh, at the end of time, I say right before Christ comes back. I think that that's a significant biblical picture which would make us question this optimism of postmillennialism that everything is just going to, you know, keep getting better and better, better overall. Sure. There's going to be setbacks or whatever, but I think that this causes us to question that. Now, again, as a premillennialist, I've said this before that, uh, I, I fully embrace the fact that, and, and praise the Lord that the Lord can use the gospel, uh, to turn even entire nations to himself. 
uh, and and he has done that regularly. But those are happy exceptions. So really, the the question is, what is the exception for a post millennialist? He would say the exception is when people are rebelling against God, against the gospel. A premillennialist says it's an exception when the majority of people embrace the gospel. And I think that that's a key. It's kind of like maybe an illustration would be, uh, obviously, I've been doing a lot of work on the pedo-baptism debate. Well, one of the big components for the pedo-baptism is that those who argue for pedo-baptism often say, well, the norm would be that the entire family would embrace Christ and therefore they would all be baptized. But then you have passages that are very specific from Christ that says, I've come to set father against mother, a brother against uh, uh, son-in-law, all these you know, family units are being set against one another. And I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And well, what is it then? And as a Baptist, uh, you know, many of the Baptists would say it's exceptional if an entire family becomes saved. Uh, that that's unique. Uh, it's not the norm. So it's, what are we talking about norm and, and how does scripture describe these things? I think scripture paints the gospel in, uh, paints uh, the gospel of a narrow road, right? A narrow gate. That's the way scripture paints the gospel. And so we understand that there are going to be many, many people who even claim the name of Christ, yet they are not actual believers. And so I think that post-millennialism errors in that way, specifically where they often are a little too optimistic about how many people are actually going to be uh, saved and become Christians. So it's some interesting uh, thought processes there, at least. We'll talk more about this in future episodes as well, but it's time to wrap it up. Uh, as always, welcome your feedback. Thank you, everyone who reaches out. And sorry that I can't respond to everybody. And sometimes I respond months after after the comments and questions come in. But I do thank you for listening. And as always, you can reach out to me through the contact form on my website, petergaiman.com. If you want more information on the seminary, where I teach, which we are starting this week for our fall classes. Really excited about that. You can visit shepherds.edu. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.